This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Thanks for joining me, Mark, on the Football CFB podcast. Hi, mate, no problem. Um, I'd like to start, Mark. You were obviously, you first came to my prominence seven years ago when Sir Alex Ferguson announced he was retiring from Manchester United. You were one of the first reporters to break that incredible story. How did that all come about and just how shocked were you at the time that such an icon in football and for Manchester United was finally retiring? Yeah, well, I mean, it was a shock to a lot of people because I think I think two or three days before he'd used his programme notes in a game, I forget the game they'd been playing, but in, in a home game at Old Trafford, he'd used his programme notes to say, nothing's going to change, I'm, I'm here, I'm committed for the long term, you know, I'll be here to drive you through, etc. So he, he basically used his product to deceive everybody and just keep people guessing, but he, he decided before the previous Christmas that he was going to go kept it as a closely guarded secret for a long time and, and then you know the, the, um, as the day approached I think I'm pretty sure it was a Tuesday I was, I was at Man City to do West Brom that night and uh, during the day um, rumours and gossip started to kind of suggest that it had been a golf day and people were talking about you know Fergie's going to quit and uh, it was one of those where it kind of gathered pace I spoke to somebody around about I think about 10 to 8 that night they said yeah take it seriously so like I said I spoke to my boss at the Telegraph and said look I don't think this game is really that important now and he was like yeah forget it um, so I was basically working in the press room while the game was going on I was just writing the story in the press room so um, it was uh, it, it was pretty insignificant the, the Man City West Brom game I don't even know what the score was to be honest <laughs> it, it, it was so insignificant and then uh, yeah the uh, it was a kind of a um, I thought it was an easy night because we published a story uh, just just after 10 o'clock, I think, and there was no confirmation from United until, I think, quarter past nine the following morning. So it was, I went to bed that night thinking, oh, Jesus, if I'm wrong, he's going to ban me again because I've been banned prior to that and he was going to ban me for getting it wrong. I was thinking about being banned from his press conference on Friday. So there was quite a lot of relief on um, on the Wednesday morning when they announced uh, at quarter past nine, I think it was the first ever tweet from the Man United Twitter account that, he was retiring, so um, because obviously he changed his mind in the past. He was going to retire in, I think, 2001, 2002, and he, yep. uh, he did a U turn on that. So he never quite knew the Fergie until, until the very moment he was confirmed. So, uh, but yeah, seven years ago, it sounds, uh, it feels like yesterday to you. You mentioned there that obviously he was, he was famous or infamous, depending on how you look at it, for banning journalists at times. And you mentioned there you, you felt the wrath of him in terms of being banned yourself. Did you ever receive the hairdryer treatment as part of that too? Yeah, well, I got the hairdryer treatment when I went back to ask him to lift the ban and uh, I was told that he was going to lift the ban and uh, he was going to soften his stance, but it proved to be uh, incorrect information because he basically blasted me with a real kind of volley of uh, abuse. Basically what had happened was I'd written sorry that Real Ferdinand was going to miss a game in Everton at the start of the season through injury. And he missed the game, he was injured, but Fergie, you know, he lost that night and Fergie blamed me for basically giving Everton the team. Which, you know, I think considering that two of the Everton players had played for United and had mates at United, it was, I was one of the last people to find out. I'm sure David Moyes knew before, before I did. So, um, But basically what had happened was Real missed the game. Michael Carrick played at centre-half and Fellaini scored late in the game for Everton, out-jumping Carrick, so Fergie thought that, or claimed, or you know, needed an excuse that by my story, David Moyes changed his tactics so that Fellaini would target Carrick, so it's just nonsense really, but yeah, I was banned for three months for that. In terms of Sir Alex there, we talked about his retirement, we talked about you um, having the hairdryer treatment, and you mentioned there the Man United Twitter account starts up and tweets out one of the first ever tweets, Sir Alex is retiring. Well, now seven years on, could I couldn't foresee as a Man United fan that the club was going to was going to implode in, in, from from basically one manager to another to where we are now. I mean, 
when David Moyes was announced as his successor, what was your initial reaction? Did you think it was a good move or was it always kind of obvious to journalists like yourself that Moyes could have been out of his depth? No, I mean, I, I'm not going to start, I'm not going to claim the benefit of hindsight on this one because I think when David Moyes was announced or selected, I think we all kind of got carried away by the uh, the whole narrative to it that, you know, for, that Fergie had picked this success and uh, it was, you know, a chip off the old block. It was, it was another kind of time-served Glaswegian, Scottish manager, call it what you will, who earned these kind of stripes in the Premier League. So I think initially we kind of fell for it and uh, the six-year plan and what have you, but it was fairly obvious, well, before the season even started that it wasn't the right fit. And I remember being on a pre-season tour in Australia and it just, there were noises coming out of the squad that they weren't impressed with Moyes and his coaches and the tactics and, and some of the things he was saying were very kind of, unlike a Man United manager, he was very kind of, it was very negative with Fergie. He would always talk about the positives and there was never any negativity with Ferguson. Morris was the total opposite. And uh, alarm bells were ringing early on. And then, you know, they won the first game and a good start to beat Swansea. But then you know, the wheels came off a bit. I think, I think it was by the end of September. I think they lost at home to West Brom. And from that point, I was yeah. like, this guy isn't going to succeed. He's just not going to work. And he's, the players just weren't having him at all. And, you know, subsequently, you hear a lot about the players at the time. and they just didn't think he was cut out for it. He didn't have the mentality for Man United and he didn't have the outlook you need and he didn't have the credentials, none of his coaching stuff. Because, you know, Phil Neville was there, but he actually knew the club, but it was his first coaching job. Steve Round wasn't qualified for it. Jimmy Lumsden wasn't qualified for it. It was, it was quite sad, really, that United had gone down that route. And I, I still think that if they'd been a bit bolder and a bit more strategic, if they'd gone from Mourinho then, it would have been a much better fit than he was three years later. I think it, I think at the time United needed United players like Ferdinand Vidic, Gabe etc. We needed Van Persie as well. We needed a big character that we could look at. They'd lost the biggest character in the game. And they needed somebody to come in and say, look, you know, the big guy's gone, but I'm, I'm the bigger guy as he is. And in came David Moyes with all his uh, daft ideas about banning chips the night before games and things. It just, <laughs> it just didn't really work. You know? So, um, yeah, I'm not going to say day one I thought it was going to fail. I think by Two things I'm interested to focus on about David Moyes' reign at United. First of all is the um, the situation with Rio Ferdinand, who came out and said that one of the um, video analysis sessions he was shown was mm. a clip of Phil Jagielka, and um, that he was told to be more like him in terms of defending certain parts of the box. Can you confirm that story? Yeah, well, that's one of the great stories of the time, and... Uh... I spoke to the man village about that because the story was that it was Ferdinand and Vidic who brought in and they were showing videos of Jack Gelka heading balls. Now, Vidic wouldn't confirm it. He wouldn't deny it, but he wouldn't confirm it. And, and Rio himself, I think Rio's kind of gone close to confirming it, but it's one of those where nobody's actually put the hand up and said, David Moyes dragged me in and said, defend like Phil Jack Gelka. I wouldn't be surprised if he did, um, but nobody's actually come out and said, this is what happened. And the people that were involved have all kind of Played a little bit with the, the actual events of the time, so mm. but it does kind of sum up what happened at United during the David Moyes um, era. I mean, I, I spoke to a player recently about the piece I was doing, he was saying that when they played uh, Bayern Munich away in the Champions League, Moyes was basically suggesting the players kick the ball against the legs of the Bayern Munich players to try and win corners, and it was, they were just laughing at the, the kind of <laughs> the, 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 the idea that Man United players should be trying to reduce themselves to the tactics of the League Two side, but. Um, yeah, it was a, it was a bad well, it was a bad year. Well, it was a few bad years since as well. In terms of that year under Moyes, one of the things I'm intrigued to ask you about, Mark, personally, is the signing of Juan Mata. For me, at the time as a fan, it was exciting when Juan Mata came in. But at the same time, there was part of me looking back, especially the beauty of hindsight, that thinks was that David Moyes' signing or was that Ed Woodward's way of trying to overcompensate for the the mess of the first summer under Moyes. I think it's a lot. I think Ed Woodward wanted a um, wanted a big name signing. He wanted to he wanted to show people he could get deals done. And certainly at the time when the, the, the deal had been done, that the, the briefing from the club was how you know how well Ed had done, how Ed had got a player at Chelsea. Chelsea didn't want to sell to Man United, but let's be honest, he paid over the odds for a player that Chelsea didn't want. And you know, as nice as a player one matter is, he's not he's not a player that's ever made a difference at Man United. He, he, he's just quite he's just not you know what. Man United are about. He's not, he's not quick enough. He's not, he's not strong enough. He's a, he's a nice little player, but he's not a Man United player. And uh, you know, David Moyes, I'm sure, 
at the time, United was struggling so badly that it would have been it would have taken anything just to help the team. And I, I wouldn't have thought David Moyes was against signing one match, but I'm sure it was driven by forces beyond his control and that Edward was desired to, you know, sign a big name player. We all remember the footage of him landing in a helicopter at Carrington and it to suggest that, you know, United superstar arrived, but he wasn't really a superstar and he's he's done okay for United one matter, but you know, he, I feel quite sorry for the way that he you know, about six, seven years at Man United by the time he leaves, whenever he does, and um, it had been there through one of the worst periods in the club's recent history. You know, he, he won't have been a title. He'd have been there through six or seven years of turmoil. He won't actually feel the sensation of being a Man United player that's winning big things. And uh, when he looks back at his time at Old Trafford with fondness, he probably will, but it'd be a period of uh, great disappointment as well. In terms of um, that season, the last question on Moyes in particular. How David Moyes was sacked was 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 criticised heavily from Moyes himself, but also lots of people within football. Did Ed Woodward brief journalists about Moyes going before David Moyes found out, or was that blown out of proportion? That was again, that was blown out of proportion. See, this is a problem with social media these days, and people get a perception of things and run with it before they let know the truth. You know, Ed Woodward came in after David Gunner wanted to be more communicative with the media because David Gill was just didn't communicate, you know, just didn't. It was it was the way the club ran, was run then and, uh, and Ed came in with this idea that he wanted to be more accessible and certainly his first six months he made mistakes, he was too accessible but, you know, the David Morris sacking was not Ed Woodward picking up the phone and telling people that he was going to get sacked. It was basically a case of journalists had worked out and found out that Morris was, was going to go and nobody at the club was denying it. Nobody was confirming it, but nobody was denying it. And when nobody denies something like that, it's you know it's fair game to say, right, well, that's happening. So, yeah. but you know, Ed Woodward did not ring around it, and you know I, I think Ed has, has got a lot of failings, and he's I don't think he's cut out for the job to be honest. But I will defend him on that one that it, he wasn't ringing around journalists briefing that David Moyes is going to get sacked. And he was. I remember a couple of days later, he was, he was speaking to people and he was asking, you know, why do people think I've briefed against David Moyes? And he hadn't. It, it, it just wasn't the case. And it was just... But again, because people found out early on that he was being accessible to the media and, and, and helping journalists at times, they assumed that he was telling people. And, and it's, he never lost that reputation. I mean, Edward would barely speak to people now. But it, whenever, whenever Man United had linked with a player now or... A new manager, it's always assumed that Edward has been brief and it, he'll never lose that reputation, but it, it couldn't be further from the truth. Staying stay on Woodward, um, obviously, he gets a lot of criticism from not just Man United fans, but let's be honest, a lot of people within football generally, whether it be pundits um, or, or ex legends, Gary Neville being one of them. What is he like as a person? Is he, is he someone who is a nice guy but is just a wee bit out of his depth? Yeah, I mean. He is, um, you know, I've, I've had drinks with Edward, you know, with, with a journalist, and he's, he's good company, and he's, he's a pleasant pleasant guy, um, but I don't think he's cut out for the job, I just don't think he's, you know, to be to be, to be successful in football, you have to be kind of, a, you have to have a bit of a ruthless streak, and be a bit of a bastard, I think, you know, be a bit of a guy that doesn't want to, upsetting people, I think Eddie's just basically too nice, I think, I just think he's, He's a good guy, he's a decent guy, but he's just not got the, the nasty streak that you probably need for that job. And, you know, David Gill had it more to the sense that he, he couldn't care less what journalists thought or did. He just wasn't interested in, you know, that doesn't help other journalists. But if you're running a football club and you're not really, you know, he's not taking notice of the noise from outside, then I, I guess that is the way to do it, you know. I just think Edward wants to be liked. He wants people to think that he's doing a great job, but it doesn't really matter. It's all about doing a good job. And, but yeah, you know, he's, He's good company and he's, he's, a, he's a decent guy, but he's just not cut out for the job. Moving on from the boys' era to, to, to obviously Ryan Giggs takes over, um, and then obviously Van Hal comes in. Was Giggs ever close to getting the job, or was it just a case of Woodward thought after Moyes he needed a big name to appease fans? I don't think Giggs was ever close to getting the job. I, I think that I think that Ryan as well has kind of learned that over the years. I think he he always felt that he's been, you know prepared for the job and prepared and you know when Louis van Gaal came in the only way that he was going to get the job after Louis van Gaal was if, was if Louis van Gaal was a big success and the fact that he wasn't after two years meant that you know they couldn't hand the job to Ryan Giggs having had two years of assistance with Louis van Gaal in a struggling Man United and he wasn't really part of the backup staff the, the coaching staff of the David Moyes despite a title of being player assistant coach he was never really involved because he 
Ian Moyes didn't really have the same outlook on the game. So I just think that he was always going to have to go away and learn his trade. But I don't think he was ever... The only, the only way that Ryan Giggs would have got the job is if he had retired a couple of years earlier, gone to Celtic's coaching staff and been the next guy on the, on the taxi, I could guess. At, at the time, you know, when Celtic left, it would have been a lot easier for them to give it to Ryan Giggs then if he'd had a couple of years as Bergie's number two. But yeah. that wasn't the case. And I, I don't think Ryan ever, in, in all honesty, would expect he was going to get a job once Celtic left. In terms of Van Hal, obviously he's a very big personality. He came in, he was clearly passionate um, about what he does, but at times I think, obviously, he kind of, for me, started the whole philosophy debate that you hear all the time now with managers. I think, for me, looking back, Van Hal's problem was that he was far too stubborn and it was his way of the highway, and that, I think, in the end, it did come back to haunt him. And some of the football was pretty boring. What was it like covering United at that time for his two seasons? Well, yeah, it was... It wasn't much different from the David Moyes times, to be honest. They'd, they'd signed a few bigger players, you know, they'd drink quite a bit like Di Maria or Falcao, but he was, for me, Van Gaal was a manager that was out of date. He was, he was just a guy that had he disappeared into international football after being at Bayern Munich, and he, I think for three or four years, he'd been out of the club game, but it showed he was just, he was past his best, you know, Van Gaal's best time was in the mid-90s, and that's when he was a revolutionary. By the time he came to Man United, he was, he was an old guy, wedded to old ideas, and his football was, Desperately boring at times. The players used to hate it. He was, they found his training boring too methodically. He'd stop players in the training pitch and basically tell them to move, you know, 12 inches to one side to be in a different position. He, he basically, he went his place to his old box and, you know, they hated the lack of expression. And, um, you know, there were times when he would tell his players to take, to, he basically told them, don't shoot your first touch. Take, take a first touch and shoot. But if you're a striker, and you're you playing instinct, you want to take your first touch. And if, if you took a, spot, a shot with your first touch and missed, you had to explain yourself to, to Van Gaal. And he would have DVD sessions where he would basically pick up on the players' mistakes. And in, in front of the teammates, you know, he'd have these sessions and, and say, Why do you do that? Why do you do that? And it, it felt it was, it was just way, way, way too involved in, in micromanaging the players. And it, it, and it showed on the pitch, it was very, very boring. And uh, by the end of it, by the end of the two years, it was, it was clear to everybody that. He had to go because the players had just lost all not respect for him, completely respect him as a coach, but he found it too hard to play for. It was just it was just too mentally draining. One of the things I must say about Van Hal, we're both in agreement that the football was quite robotic, and even as a fan, it got very tiresome watching it towards the end. But what I will give him immense credit for was the performance he had at Anfield when Juan Mata scored the overhead kick. For me, as a fan, of I'm only twenty four, um, so I'm relatively young, but. I think, for me, that's one of the best Man United performances I've ever seen at Anfield. Would you agree with that? Um, I'm a bit older than you, so I've seen, I've seen a lot much better performances than that at Anfield. And, uh, I don't know, because I think at the time, both clubs were kind of struggling a bit. They were both basically fighting over um, a Champions League play, so I just think that was two average teams going at each other and United getting yep. a result. I've, I've, seen, um, I've seen United go there and, and you know, tear them apart at times, so... That for me doesn't even rank in the top ten to not top five, shall we say? Um, it just simplified. It was symbolic of the two sides at the time, you know. There was no real, no real quality in either, really. That's a, that's a good, very good point. And as I say, for me, I suppose over the last seven years, the fact I'm saying that's one of the best performances I remember. Anfield just shows maybe how far, how far the club has dropped. And obviously, following Van Hal. Pep Guardiola, it's announced obviously during Van Hal's last season, is going to, to Man City. Did Man United ever make any real concrete offer to try and steal Guardiola from City's clutches, or was it just far too down the line to even bother trying? No, I think City had had Guardiola pretty much lined up for three years. You know, they admitted that they tried to get him before he went to Bayern Munich, brought him Manuel Pellegrini to basically have the of the ship. You know, so Alex Ferguson had, had tried to persuade him to keep in touch um, but it never happened so I don't think that United were ever really in the race for Guardiola I think they realised that Man City had built the club from they brought in Fran Soriano as chief exec Chiki Paguristan as director of football both guys here from Barcelona so it was by the time that Pep came in it was it was basically Barcelona light it was it was it was a club built for Pep Guardiola so and that had been taking place for three or four five years you know so um, United never really had that long term look at him in terms of Mourinho, obviously, Guardiola in at Manchester City, and it's felt for quite a lot of people at the time that 
the appointment of Mourinho for Man United was very reactionary. Um, it was very reactive rather than proactive. Um, would you concur with that? Um, well, I wouldn't say it was reactive. I think, you know, it was obvious by the December of uh, Van Gaal's last season that he wasn't going to stick around because it, the, the players had lost it. And obviously at that time, Mourinho had just been sat by Chelsea. So United had the situation where you had a manager that was going to go at the end of the season and, you know, one of the best managers in the world has suddenly become available. So the fact that City appointed Guardiola a month later clearly uh, raised the stakes in terms of bringing more charisma to Man City and Manchester itself. But I do think that United are already kind of looking at Mourinho as a potential replacement for, for Van Gaal before Guardiola arrived. So I, I don't think it was a reaction to City appointed Guardiola. So I think, you know, if, if Van Gaal had gone, who else would be a turn to? I think, you know, Pochettino was it was a candidate, but if Mourinho's available, this is 20, summer 2016, if this guy's available, you know, less than just a year after winning the title with Chelsea, you have to take him. So he was he was available, he was the best man around for the job. So it was based on what they needed to do rather than what City had done. In terms of when Mourinho comes in, it's one of those appointments that did split quite a lot of people. But for me personally, um, I was for it at the time because I felt that Following on from Boys and Van Hal, I thought Mourinho, let's be honest, he's a proven winner and he's, he guarantees trophies really wherever he goes. And he did that at United, albeit not to the scale that, that fans wanted. In that first season, obviously, Ibrahimovic, Pogba, they're the sort of signings that, that inspire you as a fan. And you think you're going to maybe push for a title challenge, but that never really happened um, for him. How, how disappointing was Mourinho's time at Man United for, for not just fans but for you as a journalist covering it because it probably to, to a lot of people on the outside felt as if Mourinho's coming in Man United are going to be back whereas 18 points or so behind City was as close as it got It was but it was still second I think I think you know when people look back that when Jose was talking about that being one of his biggest achievements in football getting Man United second it, you know he had a point because he, he did that with a squad that wasn't good enough and he yeah. He somehow got on to finish second by some distance, but you know, ahead of Liverpool at the time. And it was, um, I just think that the problem that Mourinho had was that he went to United at the worst possible time, just as Man City were ready to throw the, everything at Pep Guardiola. And it was impossible to compete with City for three years. And, and you know, Mourinho would not only had to, basically, he's the second best guy in his own city. You know, I think Mourinho could take it as the second best guy in the Premier League, but he wasn't even the main guy in Manchester. And it was, he had no chance at all of competing with Guardiola for two or three years. United was so far behind City off the pitch at the time that it was an impossible task for him, but he couldn't turn the Man United job down. So, you know, the football wasn't great. And I think by by the end of his first season, I think the Ritmering realised that he was on a, he, he just wasn't going to win anything substantial at Man United. And he just basically, you know, he, he got to him a little bit and he, he turned into the nasty Mourinho, the grumpy Mourinho that we all see. And it began to poison the atmosphere at the club. So it was always going to end as it did, as it always does with Mourinho. But I think in a, at a different time, he might have succeeded. But I just think he had an impossible scenario. And it didn't take long for the people at the, the hierarchy to realise that he was hard work, high maintenance. And uh, it was always going to end in tears because Mourinho only wants to be the winner and, and compete as he does. In terms of it ending in tears, as you say, particularly in that last few months before he was before he was sacked, it was kind of inevitable, as you say. The atmosphere from pre-season onwards was very poor, but I think a lot of fans, especially now, seeing Mourinho at Tottenham and things, maybe point even more spotlight on Ed Woodward for that spell. Obviously, we all know the Harry Maguire situation where Mourinho wanted a centre-half and was apparently vetoed, but looking back at Mourinho's time at Man United, do you think Ed Woodward gave him his, the utmost support that he needed and deserved, or do you think maybe sometimes the reaction towards Woodward from Mourinho's supporters is maybe a bit over-egged? I think the support was always down to that last summer when Mourinho wanted a defender and didn't get what he wanted. Now, I'll never know why, and nobody seems to know why, that Mourinho is a big character, big manager. He didn't actually make more of the things that he'd did it be, use his power a bit more with that and, and say, you know, come out in public and say, I've been denied a set half hour. It was all kind of very much kind of hidden messages. You know, Mourinho's such a big guy that, he, you know, he could have walked out of that job and, and pulled the rope from under Woodward and the Glazers, but he didn't do. And uh, people say there's too much money at stake. But I don't know, I just think 
if your professional pride is, is, is being hit and you feel like you're not able to jump to the best of your ability, then something like Mourinho is, is big enough to, to say, right, I've had enough. So um, it just didn't see, it didn't end well. It was just, it got to the point where United looked at what Mourinho wanted and found that too much money had been spent on players that weren't going to have a resale value, people like Matic, Ibrahimovic, but you find a manager, you've got to back him and you can't, you can't then be you can't be the executive vice chairman and you know with this mysterious transfer expert committee reaching the manager's request because if, if he thinks he needs to send it off and time has proved that he did then you should back him in that. In terms of Mourinho um, at the club, one of the big things that's been talked about is his relationship with Pogba and that in the last few months before he left seemed absolutely toxic and the situation with Pogba even this season seems. Never, I would never accuse a player of feigning an injury or anything, but it seems quite strange how how often he's been unavailable this season, considering he's made it clear he wants to leave. Was that relationship with Mourinho yeah. as toxic as people think? Yeah, Pogba and Mourinho didn't get on. So certainly in the second season that he was there, there was just a, a breakdown in the relationship, full stop. You know, I don't think anybody on either side would deny that. Yeah. It's just a, a complete lack of... Uh, I won't say understanding each other's part of this, they just clashed, you know, they weren't, weren't for each other. I think I do think the Mourinho had a point at times that Pogba didn't really deliver as he, as he should have done. And Pogba is a player that needs to work harder on the pitch, a bit more defensively aware, especially the Mourinho team. But then did Mourinho provide those players alongside him to, to help Pogba play to his best? I don't, don't think he did. And at times Pogba's play, playing a defensive midfielder, which he clearly isn't. So it was just a, 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 a relationship that was never going to work. And but yeah, but has Pogba given as much as he could do? Well, you know, Oligan Associates said on the 1st of January, I think it was, that he, this latest injury is going to keep him out for three or four weeks. Well, and they've been told it's going to be March. So it's, uh, yeah, it's been a long, frustrating season if you're a fan of Paul Pogba. You know? After Mourinho's tenure, obviously it ended in tears, lots of anger, I think, in both sides and the way it ended. Um, I'm interested to ask you, Mark, obviously hindsight's a wonderful thing, but when Mourinho goes... And it's announced that United are going to go for the Molder manager, albeit Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, who is a club legend. How surprised were you by that? Well, on the day it happened, I wasn't overly surprised because I think in terms of the candidates that were out there to do a kind of a holding job for, for six months, it was either Ryan Giggs or Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, and Ryan Giggs was in a job in Wales. So, um, so Solskjaer was, at the time was probably the best option available. But he wasn't the best option to become the permanent manager. I think everyone at the club, you know, panicked and jumped too quick and, and put too much store on a few results, you know, following his arrival. It's, it's just, he just wasn't the man for the long-term job. So Pochettino was the guy they wanted. He, he would have been hard to get, but um, I don't know. I just think United jumped too quickly on that. And they're paying the price for now. You know, we're talking about a club that is, I think, their seventh or eighth, and that they're looking like they've got an outside an outside chance only of being in the top four and that shouldn't be the case for Man United no matter who the manager is so Solskjaer isn't delivered he might be a nice guy and the fans love him but he's not delivering Absolutely I think when he came in the, the results for me I was delighted when he came in in terms of the, the instant results and the night in Paris w- was great but even at the time I, I did feel that it was too quick and actually was at the Watford game which was his first game as, as permanent manager and even that day being at that game United won the game but it was it was, it just felt as if even watching it, hindsight again is a wonderful thing, it just felt as if the foot was off the gas compared to the way it had been a few weeks previous and since then, the run to the end of the season was at times horrendous, Everton being the big turning point um, and obviously that led us to the summer and to be fair to Ollie, I think his recruitment has been good um, but in terms of recruitment at Man United, what's your awareness of the situation because as a fan from the outside looking in, it just looks like just far too many cooks in the one kitchen in terms of having opinions on players and databases on hundreds, if not thousands, of players for the same position. Yeah, it's, uh, I think United are overdoing the, the data and the eyes of the, the scouts, etc. I think you know there's too much information now being put into the system. They're trying to overcompensate for when they made mistakes in the past, but now it's uh, you know they try to make a big thing of having eight hundred and four right back to the database before they ended up with Aaron Wan-Bissaka now you don't need to say you've got eight of the four right backs if you've got a proper scouting system you know 
the best five or six ride bikes out there. Yep. And you get one of those, you'd have to waste your time digesting the cords of an 804. Even if the 804 phone on the list is barely, barely considered, I'm, I'm sure you got a millisecond of consideration, but you don't need to consider that many defenders. You, you, if you're working for Man United, your scouts need to know the elite players, the best players, and the players that are coming through. You don't need to know who plays at right back for, you know, Atlanta United or something like that in the, in the MLS. You just need to focus on what they can do. So there's too much information. There's too many. There's too many people involved. We need to streamline it a bit. But like I said, we go from extremes. We go from throwing money at Angle Di Maria and running off our accounts to signing players that are up and coming English players and having 101 scouts doing the business. So we need to, you know, streamline. The big question I've got for you, Mark, um, in regards to the recruitment, another one is when Mourinho left, the club made it very clear they wanted a technical director or um, footballing head of recruitment or whatever title they wanted to give it. And that's something that never, never, it's went very silent. There's not been any real talk about that since and it's went incredibly quiet and then the club have said they don't think they need one now. What's the latest in that situation? Well, it's, it's as it is. I think that um, the situation now is that they've got a, a manager and a coaching staff that are much more in tune with what the scouts are doing and the, the so-called football experts who they haven't been talking to the experts are, but basically you've got you've got Solskjaer, McPhee and his coaches, you've got the scouts, you've got the Jim Law, the head scout, you've got people like Ed Woodward and Matt Judge, and they're all involved, you know, from a football perspective, a financial perspective and what have you, and that's why they think the system they've got now works, but they do seem to be lacking a appointment. Somebody can run it as, as the technical director or, head, or director of football at the minute. It looks like the, the book starts with Ed Woodward and that shouldn't be the case. You know, he's a chief exec or executive vice chairman. They need a, need a football figure that knows football people and can get a job done. In terms of this season, we talked about Solskjaer having the great start. After Paris and Watford, things starting to dip. But he, he got the, he had the job in the bag. The summer wasn't wasn't as great as as maybe fans maybe expected it to be. Obviously, Solskjaer came out and said a striker would come in if Lukaku leaves. Then the Lukaku leaves and no striker comes in. So at times you kind of do worry as a fan. Has he got his hands tied behind his back? But the main issue I think I feel this season as a fan is when a team who are great on the counter-attack, but we can't break down low blocks. And for me, that's just that should never be the case for any Man United team. Mourinho and Van Gaal get a lot of stick rightfully at times for their style of football, but I feel at the moment, with the, the lack of ability to break down a low block, I think Solskjaer, to an extent, is getting a bit of an easy ride with that. Yeah, I think um, Solskjaer always seems to get away with it. He pulls the result out of the bag on the team. Though. Just when they're on the brink of some serious pressure, they get a result, but I think it'll be judged at the end of the day where they finish the season. And if they finish having the right, this isn't good enough. And you know, they, Solskjaer has not helped himself by allowing the, the, the squad to go into the season without proper covering all areas. You know, they, to allow two strikers to go in Sanchez and Lukaku and basically replace them with a 17 year old who's had a great season but still is 17. It's, they needed a senior striker in there, which they've finally realised by signing Odi Di Carlo. But you know, he would not been on the top. 100 is my list of players to bring in, but they, they had to bring in because they had another option. Defensive is the same. You know, they're defending out good enough in midfield, they're short because they've lost McTominay, Pompa. They let Herrera go last year, Fellaini go last year. So they've, they've cut you back too much. So Solskjaer has done well to keep them, in comp- to keep them competitive with, with the diminished squad that he's got, but it's his fault the squad is diminished because he should have brought more players and he should have fought harder to get more players in the summer. So Yes, while he's done well to keep them where they are, it's, it's his fault that one of the, he, he's partly to blame for why they're so badly. Three other questions again linked to recruitment and contracts, etc. I'm interested to ask in terms of the likes of Phil Jones, Chris Smalling. Those are the sort of players who, again, I, I would never badmouth professional footballers because they're far better a player than I ever was in the, the play for Man United, which is only a dream to someone like me, but... I think, let's be honest, I think most fans and even journalists would agree that Smalling and Jones never hit the heights that we expected and for a few years now you could definitely tell that they aren't the level of Man United defenders. I mean, the, the prime example for me is Johnny Evans. He's a better player for me than Smalling and Jones and the club let him go. So why on earth did Smalling and Jones get such long-term deals by the club? I think it's because they're English players and as you've seen in the transfer market, English players command higher fees for 
no obvious reason, but the, the premium of an English player. So I think it's purely a case of United protecting the asset. It, 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 I won't say the football, it's the case of you know, approaching the end of the contract. So the only way you can get decent money is to extend the contract. And it's, you know, it's probably not the way a, a successful club would be run, but that's the situation they find themselves in because of the decisions that have been made over the last six or seven years. So, yeah, it's just that if they sell Phil Jones or Chris Swan in the summer, they'll get decent money from him. I think that they'll get decent money for Chris Swan because they had a good season in Rome. But, yeah, I won't, I won't put it down to anything other than a business decision, which I don't think probably makes sense, but from a football perspective, it doesn't. Next question is about Gallo, who we mentioned. Now, Solskjaer has been very clear and has talked up all of the the idea of changing the culture of the club and getting the culture back to a Man United culture and not going for quick fixes. That's where, for me, the signing of Gallo really contradicts everything Solskjaer said in the sense that we are aware that Gallo seems to have an agent linked to Solskjaer in some way, but it just seems like a signing that contradicts Solskjaer's belief in what he's been talking about. Yeah, I'm not sure that the the agent is, is, is an element in the sort of thing that United got to the point where they're desperate for a striker and they looked at what was available and there was very, very little available. And, you know, Ogni Nigalo was on this list of players that would never ever get a boot to Man United. You know, Joshua King, Ogni Nigalo, this is, you know, they would never ever Man United trust. But he was available. So that's why the deal was done. And simple as that. Um, they should have brought somebody else in during the summer, but Social wanted to promote Mason Greenwood create space for him which is all fine yeah, that needed to be done but you need four strikers really to, to compete and they now feel the, the pinch for that and if, if a girl comes in and helps with that great I think you know it certainly seems enthusiastic because he's a United fan and he's he seen yeah. this as, a, as a, an opportunity that would never come his way ordinarily so I think it does seem to be giving the, the, the sense that it means a lot to him I think that you, know, you can argue that players like Anthony Martial are the same and if, mm. if somebody comes into the yeah. team with that passion and that desire to succeed it, it might rub off on other people and he's, he doesn't have the worst record in the Premier League but you know I don't want to kill anybody by saying he's, he's the guy I would have signed but it might work out better than people think simply because he has the desire and the determination to make it work but yeah it's not a sort of it's, a, it's not a sort of player would have signed a, six months ago that way that leads me on to a question about Bruno Fernandes. Now, he is, he seems to be an exciting player. I've not had the chance to watch him. I wouldn't claim that I've had the chance to watch him as regularly as, as maybe others would claim because I'll be honest with you, Sport and Lisbon aren't a team that, unless they're playing maybe Champions League or Europa League, they're not a team I watch week in, week out. But from the clips I've seen and from the articles I've read, he seems highly regarded. But what I'm interested to ask you, Mark, again, is just the, the, the situation in regards to transfers and the sort of chalk and cheese element of in the summer we're told Fernandez is continually linked there's no interest there please stop linking him with the club then come January it's basically it takes them one month to get a guy they could have had on January the first if they just paid the money Sporting wanted well yeah I mean you know you, you can't play that to Liverpool who had Minamino done before the, the window even opened you look at Van Dijk that was done on the, I think the 1st of January 2018 when it spent three months trying to get that deal done. So Liverpool, they're, they're a better team. Liverpool have shown how to get things done. Uh, you know, Chelsea have done Hakim Zayas today for the summer. They did Pulisic last January for the summer. You know, it do take a long time haggling and trying to get deals done. They don't do anything very quickly. And it's just a problem again. This stems back to Ed Woodward, you know, the, the process that he oversees that it shouldn't take so long to get a deal done. If, if, you, need the, if you need the guy on the 1st of January, then you get it done on the 1st of January or the 2nd of January, the latest. You don't wait to the end. But, you know, sporting were a club that were prepared to sell for a fee. So, you know, again, Man United have, have allowed the transfer window to make them like mugs. Going forward, Mark, we've bo- we both agree in the sense all he's a great guy, he's a club legend, he's someone who, given the tools that he's got, he's, he's doing well to have his competitive for the top four. But I think the big question I've got for you, and I'm interested to know your view because I know what mine is, obviously, long term, come the summer, if United don't finish in the top four, considering that Liverpool are going to win the Premier League, they're running away with it. City, you never know, could still win the Champions League. Given those circumstances, if Solskjaer finishes outside the top four, is there any way at all you think that Woodward can seriously keep him on as manager next season? Well, there's always a chance that could happen because, you know, United have proven to be a bit 
erratic with their decision making in recent years. But I think if United miss out in the top four, I think it'd be hard for Solskjaer to stay in the past. That's always been a uh, that's always been a deal breaker for keeping managers. David Moyes was sacked, Louis Van Gaal was sacked, you know Mourinho was heading that way anyway. So if you miss out in the top four with a, with the coach like Mauricio Pochettino available, then I'd be amazed if Solskjaer retains his job. I, I think the biggest the biggest nightmare for United now is that Solskjaer gets United into the, the top four of the Champions League and they have to stick with him. I mean, I just don't think he's the guy for the long term. So if I was in charge at Man United, I'd be making plans now to to get a new manager in because I'd be Solskjaer would be cut out for the Man United job, plain and simple. In terms of going forward, I must say I agree with you. I think the initial reaction he got... I think the idea of him coming in in a caretaker role for six months was, was very good. I think at that time, considering the way Mourinho had ended, you needed someone who got the club and could raise spirits, which to be fair, Ollie Gullin Solskjaer is the sort of guy that can raise spirits. But as you say, I think now, at times you feel sorry listening to him after certain games when the team's drawn or lost because you just think to yourself, you're a legend and I don't want to see it end this way for you. For me, I think the club should be going for Pochettino in the summer, but the, the main worry for me is... Pochettino's the sort of manager that could command a job at, at PSG or Real Madrid should one become available. Is Man United even at the top of his list? You're also managing the Premier League. Um, United is the best job that's likely to become available in the Premier League, I think. You can't, uh, obviously, Real Madrid's a big job, but in the you don't feel okay at the moment. But I'm in the league this year and the Champions League, perhaps. PSG... You know, it's not it's not really a job where you go to get any ambitions as a manager because it's quite a it's quite an easy league to win and yeah. I think Pochettino wants to work in an exciting league and that's what he's saying. So, you know, I, I don't I wouldn't play down United's prospects of getting Pochettino because despite the fact that they've fallen difficult times recently, they're still playing the Premier League and the Premier League is a very attractive proposition for most managers. In terms of United going forward, Mark, obviously about we're headed towards the summer. Might finish top four, might not. In terms of recruitment, Edward would obviously had a statement read out at the fans forum, basically saying preparations are under underway for the summer. It's going to be a massive summer for the club, etc. Now that's all well and good, but for me as a fan, I think it's like a copy and paste job. I feel that like we hear that every single year, and it's the same old things that happen. United signed three players rather than the five. Maybe you think they're going to sign in in the last two seasons, in the last two summers. The club have spent roughly the kind of same money and Phil Brown, great podcaster and United podcaster, had you on before the summer and you came on to his show and you said United don't have a massive budget for the summer and a lot of fans had a real go at you for that but you were proved right. Are you thinking mm. it's going to be similar in the summer? Well, that's a, that's a $64 million question, I guess. I, I don't think at this time, but we in the beginning of February that they've actually set the budget for the summer yeah, that, that tends to happen where it used to happen um, around the Champions League quarter-final time we used to have a, a big meeting around that time but obviously we're not in the Champions League quarter-finals anymore so um, the next month or so we'll probably decide what they've got to spend but they didn't spend a lot last summer they didn't spend a lot in, well they spent a bit on Fernandez for £50 million pound, but it, it, it's a lot more a lot more where that came from so you know United could have decent funds but even if they had £200 million pounds to spend that's probably that's probably four players that's yeah. four in the current climate, that's four, you know, decent players. It's not, it's not four world beaters. So, um, I think they'll have money to spend. It's just who spends it, who the manager is. They got to move quicker. You know, they, they could have got early Harland if they moved a bit quicker. Didn't get him. You know, there's a lot an element of not wanting to bring Mina Raiola back into the club again by allowing him to have this escape clause. But still, you know, they could have got that job, that deal done a lot quicker. They move quicker and, and taken that out of the equation, but. You know, it's all about whether United are quick enough in the market and they get the targets when they want, when they need them. Um, but yeah, I think it'll be, it'll be another frustrating summer. You, you kind of just pick up the previous actions and every summer with Man United and transfers is there's always a saga. It always takes forever. It's never quick. There's always, you know, a red red herring there and a wild goose chase there. So we'll see, but I wouldn't expect it to be slick and done very quickly. The last main question I've got for you, Mark, um, on Man United, obviously it's kind of turned into a Man United special, but that doesn't bother me, it's quite good. Um, the question I've got for you is, obviously, Liverpool closed in on their first title in 30 years. Arsenal have went almost 15, 20 years without winning a, a league title now. Under Ed Woodward's leadership and the way Man United are headed at the moment, 
completely erratic behaviour in the transfer market and the managerial situation. Is there a part of you that thinks it could be well over 10 years? Obviously, we're at seven as it is. It's going to be well over 10 years before United even get close to winning a Premier League again. I think uh, I'd, be, I'd be very surprised if we win the Premier League within the next three years, so that'll take it beyond 10. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, a, there's an argument that, that Pep, once Pep Guardiola is Man City, they'll have a, a transitional period, maybe a year or two, and Liverpool wants Klopp leave, same sort of thing. But, you know, you can't base your business plan on the success and failings of others, and I think, you know, United have got a long way back. And, yeah, seven years already, and uh, 10 will come around quicker and then because it's stretched to 15. I just think that, you look at Liverpool, maybe, I think at the end of the 2015 season, they lost 6-1 at Stoke, so <laughs> they, they bounced back pretty quickly. So you just got to have a good plan, a good management, be patient. And um, But yeah, I, I don't think, I think the 10-year anniversary of Ferguson leaving the pass without winning the title season. I'd like to finish with a round of quick-fire questions. The first question is, what's your favourite ground to cover football at? As a journalist in England, obviously, predominantly, what's your least favourite ground? And I don't mean that a Piva Club of, I just mean things like maybe getting to the ground, the maybe the Wi-Fi's not great, the, the gantry where you're sitting's not great. What's the least favourite ground? Least favourite, West Ham. West Ham is just, it's just, you know, it's a, it's a brand new stadium, it's not a football ground, it's just an awful stadium. It's just, the, the view's terrible, it's just, it's just, it's just a, it's just not a great experience for us as journalists or the fans. It's just, just a, you know, it's a terrible, terrible football ground. If you were to make an 11-a-side football team from the best players you've watched since you've been covering football as a journalist, who would be in the team? <laughs> Blimey. Um, Peter Schmarke in goal. Um, Gary Neville at right back. This is going to be a lot of United players, by the way, because it's... Um, They've won so many titles since I've been doing the job. So, centre half, I think you're looking at, um, so I'll say Vincent Company and Yapstam. Left back, um, Patrice Evra. I think midfield, you go, you go Kane, Scholes. Um, I'm going to say Andre Kinchelski is on the right, just for a bit of difference. On the left, Ryan Giggs. Uh, in the front two, um, I think you look at Aguero and probably let's say let's say we'd, oh, Cristiano Ronaldo. Let's not say Cristiano Ronaldo. <laughs> Daft question, but who would manage that team? David Moyes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, chips banned on a Friday. <laughs> oh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, that... Even even David Moyes might get a result with that team. Well, that's true. Um, in terms of yourself, Mark, when you were growing up, were you ever was were you ever close to becoming a professional footballer and stuff like that? Well, I mean, I played when I was, you know, as a kid and a teenager. I, I won't say I was close. I, I, when I was 13, 14, I played. I was on the books of a couple of clubs, lower league clubs, but you know, maybe, maybe, maybe not. I was never in the sense of uh, being, you know, 16, 18, having to make a decision. Who would you say has been your most memorable interview? I, I, I don't know because I don't really kind of uh, I don't really reflect on things like that. I've been a, interviewing the Manu Vidic at the end of his the end of David Moyes' season, which was quite uh, brutal, I guess. So I'd say Vidic, but it's better than not to think about it. I might come up with something else, but yeah, I think once I do a piece, I tend to move on, and I, I don't want really to keep cl- clipping or cutting or anything. It's just a case of what the next day brings. In terms of now, the last question I'll ask you, I'll move it into the. To the modern day, you're, you obviously worked for the Telegraph for many years, um, did a really great job there. As I say, we talked about the Sir Alec Ferguson retirement story. We talked about when David Moyes left the club. You were one of the, the journalists that were the forefront of that. In the summer, your your um, prediction on United's budget was, again, spot on. And for me, you are one of the journalists. The main journalist, I would say, is a reputable source in United because I feel like, from the outside looking in, you don't put your head above the parapet unless you're certain that something's going to happen, which for me is good journalism. That's led you to ESPN now, and you're working alongside guys like um, Craig Burley and Stevie Nicol, big characters. 
What's it like working for ESPN and what's it like working with those characters? Well, they're, they're great guys. You know, whenever I go on the show, um, very knowledgeable. Um, I think Craig Burley is one of the more familiar to guys in Scotland because he played Celtic. So, uh, you know, Craig's, Craig's a great pundit. I think just put his, speak his mind. Stevie Nicol, again, you know, great record at Liverpool. So, you know, they're great guys. And uh, look at ESPN's great. They're, um, you know, people look at it as an American company, so they did. What, what do Americans think about soccer? That's what I always get. What do Americans think? And you know, they get it just like anybody else does. It's just such a big country that a lot of them watch NFL and NBA. But if an American fan is into football, he's into football. And uh, you know, the appetite of the SPN for the stories and news are the same as anywhere else. And I'm just fortunate to work for a company that's you know has got a huge global reach, so that you know whenever I write something these days, I know that in the past it would be. The Telegraph or the Independent will be to a domestic audience largely, but nowadays it, it's not a domestic audience. It's, it's you know it's, it's global. So yeah, few people might read me in England now than used to do in the UK, but I'm not going to read me around the world. So and see me around the world. So it's, it's certainly a step up in terms of what I was doing in the past, and you know I can't knock it. Well, as I say, your content with ESPN is good, and I've enjoyed seeing you on ESPN FC because for me, obviously. Reading your work's great, but I also enjoy when you're on the show and you get to speak with guys like Craig because it is very entertaining for you to give your views across as well. Yeah, it's all good fun. And it's, uh, if you can give an opinion, you might as well give it and, you know, without worrying about what people think. You can't sit on the fence. You have to kind of be prepared to say something. I'd just like to finish by saying, Mark, thank you for being on the Football CFB podcast. When I started the podcast, as I say, I love football writing. It's... It's something that I think is a great talent and you were one of the ones who are, it was almost, I would say, to be honest, a dream guest in terms of your knowledge on United and your knowledge on English football in general. So thanks for being on the podcast with me. No problem, So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song Dive down to the ocean And we'll make her home in a deep sea cave And her shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song